for reading, and uh, boy, it's it's almost 12 o'clock, and we're just getting started, but really we're not. Uh, did any of you do what I did over there? I just, for a second, I had to lift up my pant leg to make sure that my socks were still on, because Helen, you prayed our socks right off. I mean, <laughs> you could... You could go home right now, and, and you'd be fine. Like, she, she blessed. Wow. <laughs> if, you, if you are able to stick around, for the next 20 or 25 minutes, we're going to tackle this one small little question. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Just that. And then we'll get that one figured out, and, and you can go home to Thanksgiving dinner. But what is the life that God desires for us? Not so much what is it that Christians believe. I mean, we could... We could make a list and we might agree or disagree, but, but what does that life look like? And the Bible uses a particular word to describe what the life of those who are in Jesus should look like. More and more each day, we are called to be, and what is the word we introduced last week? We are called to be saints. And you remember the definition, because the definition, the one that's common and popular, has some truth in it, but it also can lead us astray. The definition of a saint is a person acknowledged as holy or virtuous or heroic. And typically, they're regarded as being ensconced somewhere in heaven after death. And so if you wanted to whisper into their ear, they have the ear of God and they can get it done for you. Saint is actually a word that means holy. It's a French word. So the saints are the holy ones. And that's right on. I mean, that's that's spot on for what the Bible says. To be holy, to, to be sanctified. That's what it means to be a saint. But here's, here's where the definition leads us off the mark. And it's that sense of the heroic exclusivity to sainthood. Like the saints are only those ones who are now lit up in stained glass or carved into marble statues, safely tucked away in museums and cathedrals. And what they have achieved, I mean, that's for, that's for an exclusive few. We're just the ordinary, everyday folk. And that's a shame, if that's what we believe sainthood is about. Because it is the goal, the aspiration, and the desire of everyone who's, who has Jesus as as the central name on their lips and as the central identity in their hearts. It is your destiny. St. Augustine said long ago that there is no saint without a past. But here's the promise, that there is no sinner without a future. And that journey from sinner to saint, from the past to the future, that is the journey of becoming a saint, of being sanctify, which is just a fancy word of saying, be made holy. Jesus offers these tantalizing words, an invitation. First Peter 1, verse 16. He says, be holy because I, your God, am holy. Don't settle for less than that. And don't assume that that's only something for a prestiged few who lived a long time ago. The theme verse of our series, we're going to come back to this again and again and again. Colossians 1, verse 28. Paul says, we proclaim what? We proclaim Jesus. 
There's all kinds of things that the church can get off track on proclaiming or indulging in, but let's not miss the mark. We proclaim Jesus. We admonish and teach everyone everywhere with all wisdom. Why? What's the goal? So that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. That's the goal. Maturity. Sainthood, if you'd like. What does that look like? What are the marks of Christian maturity? More importantly, and this will be a bit of the focus today, how is it achieved? Today's focus will be on the how. And then from here, over the next four weeks, we're going to look at four interrelated, interrelated dimensions of a holy life. What are the four key markers or characteristics? To give you a preview, here they are. A holy person is a wise person. We call that, you want the big word? Sapiential holiness. Try saying that. Sapiential holiness. Find a way to work that into conversation around the Thanksgiving table. Sapiential holiness. You are homo sapiens. You are thinking beings. Sapiential holiness. How do we honor God? How are we growing in the sanctity of our thoughts, of our thought life? And then the next, the next marker is, is vocational holiness. How do we honor God? A holy person is somebody who does good work in their calling, not just their paycheck, in the work of their lives. A holy person is someone who loves other people in a manner consistent with how God has loved us. That's social holiness or relational holiness. And then the fourth marker is emotional holiness. A holy person is a joyful person. It doesn't mean you don't have bad days. We all have bad days. It doesn't mean that there aren't moments of anger or bitterness or frustration. But it means that the current of joy, the joy of the Lord, runs through you. Emotional holiness. That language of holiness, the call to be saints, is an invitation to grow in all of these areas. And what we're really doing is shifting the conversation from the question, what does it take to be saved, an important question, but to the deeper lifelong question of what does it look like when you are saved? What does the life of a saved person look like? Because salvation is just the first step of a journey, and the journey is lifelong. We're going to talk about the race and the finish line, not the starting line. And uh, let's start here. Let's start by kind of acknowledging the reality of our world where we are. There's a sociologist, a man named Christian Smith at the University of Notre Dame. He is regarded as one of the preeminent experts on the field of emerging adulthood. I didn't know that was a field, but I guess it's a field. Emerging. We have three emerging adults in our house, so I guess we also are learning in the field of emerging adulthood. Here's what he says. Smith says that the number one fastest growing religion among emerging adults in North America is not Christianity. Well, we knew that. But it's also not Islam. It's not Buddhism. It's not Hinduism. It's not even atheism. You know what it is? No, you don't, because I'd never heard of this. Smith calls it moralistic therapeutic deism. And boy, some of you, English is not your first language, and that is a mouthful. English is my first language, and that is still a mouthful. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. What is that? Because Smith says it is the fastest growing faith in our day. 
And he goes on to say it is characterized by a particular set of beliefs, and these beliefs are so popular that they're just getting embedded in the mind of a whole generation, whether we're aware of it or not. What are those beliefs? Well, here's the first one. There is some acknowledgement that there is a God or something other than that out there. Something, you know, watching over the earth. But who that God is, what that God is like, it's all just kind of fuzzy. There is, and this is a second marker, there is a God who wants, who wants people to be good and nice and kind, decent folk. That's the moralism part, moralistic. But what exactly does goodness look like? Can we agree on, on what that is? Well, that's all kind of fuzzy. The central goal of moralistic therapeutic deism is to be happy and feel good about ourselves. That's the therapeutic part. That's good therapy, good medicine. But what exactly does happiness look like? And how do you get there? That's really, really fuzzy. And here's a fourth characteristic. That God doesn't need to be particularly involved in my life for any of those things. He doesn't place demands on me. But he is available when? When I'm in a crisis. When I have a problem. That's the deism part. The difference between theism and deism, theism, of which Christianity is, uh, is one of the great, great stakeholders, theism said there is a God, God is personal, God is connected to our lives. That's theism. Deism says, well, there's something out there, kind of just like flotsam floating through the universe. That's, that's deism. And God doesn't really get involved in our lives, and we're not really connected to Him, and He doesn't intervene, and we don't, we don't call Him out, except, except when there's an emergency. And then we pick up the big red phone, and we dial up heaven and say, help. There is a book written by a parenting expert on raising teenagers. The title of the book is, Get Out of My Life, But Could You First Drive Me and Cheryl to the Mall? That's... That's kind of what, what Smith is getting here, this approach to faith. God, I don't particularly want you in my life, but could you take me to the mall first? And then the last marker of this, this emerging sort of non-religious religion is the belief that all good people go to heaven when they die. Now, who exactly is a good person, and what does heaven look like, and what does that mean? It's all kind of fuzzy. I did a funeral this week for a family who were quite candid about even though the fact we were burying somebody who was deeply spiritual and had this relationship with Jesus, that wasn't their cup of tea. And yet, one by one, they all came and they said the same thing. And they want to hold on to this, that, that somehow dad is in heaven and we'll be there too someday. But what does that mean? It's all really fuzzy. That's moralistic, therapeutic deism. Do you recognize it at all? It is the fastest growing faith in North America today. And here's what really is kind of insidious about it. Smith says that there are many people in churches who think of themselves as Christians, but really what we're living out is a kind of moralistic, therapeutic deism. And that's not Jesus. And that's not following Jesus. And so so Paul is not going to yield on this point. He says again, we proclaim Jesus. He's the one we proclaim. We admonish and teach everyone with all the wisdom we can muster. Why? Because the goal is to present everyone fully mature in Christ. Everyone complete. Everyone 
designed and living out the design that God had had seeded into them so that human life can flourish, so that the power of sin loses its grip on humanity, so that that hunger in every human heart that leaves, our, leaves us throwing ourselves away on on work or money or pleasure, all kinds of stuff, that hunger to be somebody, to have an identity, a person that I am not yet but could one day be, so that it can be rightly fulfilled as we are presented mature in Christ. And so there is a much-needed antidote to this thing that Smith calls moralistic therapeutic deism. And it's found in a little expression that recurs consistently throughout the Bible in the New Testament. You find it in the Gospels. You find it in the letters of Paul. You find it in Hebrews. It, ex- it, it kind of hinges on the explosive possibility of one little word, one little particle. In, in English, it's the word in. In Greek, it's the word an. It's really close, right? In. The abundant life, the holy life, the life God intended for his people is possible and only possible in Christ. Say that. In Christ. On Christoi. Say that. On Christoi. Listen to you Greek scholars. <laughs> In Christ. What is it that makes a Christian a Christian? It's not just believing some things that Jesus had done. Lots of people believe that. Even the demons believed in what Jesus was doing. They didn't like it, but they, they understood it. It's not just trying to follow Jesus' example. Lots of people try and do that. Gandhi thought that, uh, that Jesus was one of the greatest human teachers out there, fully worthy of following. What is it? It's full participation in the life of Christ. It's union with Christ. A Christian is someone whose identity and purpose and value are all found in Christ. Say that again, in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, some of you are following a, a book as we work our way through this material called called to be saints. The author is is Gordon Smith, and different Smith than the one we were talking about a second ago. Gordon Smith says that the phrase to know, to love, to serve is a good starting point. And that's kind of clear in the Gospels. As those early followers of Jesus come to know Jesus, understand what it looks like to love the way Jesus loved and aspire to serve the way that he served. But, but it goes deeper than that. It goes a lot deeper The Christian life is not just a life that is lived with Jesus or for Jesus. It is a life that is lived in Christ. And in order to to kind of unpack that a little bit, we're going to do a grammar lesson. Is that okay? If any of you are teachers, I apologize right away. I did terrible in English. It was my worst class. But I want to talk to you about prepositions. You remember prepositions? How many of you learned grammar watching Saturday morning cartoons? <laughs> Conjunction, junction, what's my funk? You remember? No. Okay. Prepositions. Prepositions are the little words that link together nouns or objects. And what they really do is they express a relationship between two objects, two people, uh, two settings. For example, he stood beside her. Beside is a preposition. And it, it, it enables you to locate the two objects in space. He stood beside her. Or how about this one? She arrived after dinner. Again, it's locating 
two things. This time it's locating them in time. She arrived after is the preposition dinner. So let's let's think about some of the prepositions that that might be used to describe our relationship with Jesus. Now, here we are. This is us. Here is uh, here is Jesus. We're just gonna we're gonna fill him up here. There he is. Okay. Now, this is not the scale. Obviously, we are way smaller. Jesus is way bigger. But you but you get the point. Okay. How about this? That that Jesus is behind us. There we are. Uh, for a lot of people, this is really true. Right? Uh, they were raised in a home. That was mom and dad's belief. It's a little bit in us, but not really. That's that's behind us. Uh, it, it's it's a bit of a launching pad, but we haven't really gotten off the pad. Jesus is behind us. How about this one? Jesus is in front of us, meaning I understand there's something important about it, and I'm going to get to it someday. Someday I'll get serious about it, but that is not this day. Jesus is still out in front of us. How about this one? Jesus is underneath us. That sounds good. He's the foundation of our lives. He is the bedrock on which we form our lives. That sounds really good. Except that there is a there's a danger that in locating ourselves that way, there hasn't really been a coming together. The, the same problem arises when we think about, well, Jesus is above us. He's up there in in the clouds watching over us, taking care of us, protecting us. That's a good thing. He's above us. But again, has he really penetrated our lives? Well, how about this? This sounds like good language. How would we describe that? Jesus is within us. Christ in us. Actually, that sounds really right, doesn't it? Christ is within us. But it's deeper even still. It goes further even than that. Because the expression used in the Bible is not Christ in us. What is it? It is us in Christ. This is a full immersion in Christ. Christ in us? Yes. The glass is still full. Us in Christ. Us disappearing into the vast, limitless ocean of who God is. That's what is in view in the scriptures. Turns out, prepositions matter. And I should have paid more attention in school. (laughs) To be in Christ. The Christian ideal is not so much with Christ or for Christ, but a life lived in Christ. Christ. We're going we're gonna to go quickly, like two or three minutes each, into the places in the Bible where this is unpacked, and then we'll end for today. The first is in the Gospel of John. John is a magnificent uh, window that opens up into the life of Jesus and the relationship between Jesus and his followers. There is stuff in John that you won't see anywhere else. Jesus, Jesus talks about this relationship using the image of a garden. It says, God is the gardener, and I am the vine. And all of us, we are like the branches that are grafted onto the vine. And we live, we are fruitful 
only to the extent that we are grafted in to the vine. If that inness is lost, we can't thrive, we can't grow, we can't bear fruit, we can't even survive. And Jesus ends that little illustration with an invitation. He says, abide in me and I in you. See, it's going both ways. It's not just Christ in me, it's us in Christ. Abide in me as I in you. It's moving in both directions. Christ, his very self, he is our true home. Therefore, we don't just follow Jesus, even though we certainly follow. And we don't just obey Jesus, though certainly we want to live up to his will in our lives. And we don't merely imitate Jesus. What would Jesus do? Though without doubt, we want to follow his example. Rather, we participate fully in the life of Jesus, literally, not just metaphorically. This is the very language that we find in in 2 Peter 1, verse 4. And I don't think we have a slide for that, so if you want to flip in your devices or your Bibles, 2 Peter 1, verse 4. This is how Peter is describing what sanctification is, sainthood, becoming saints. He says that the divine power of Jesus has given us everything we need for a godly life through the knowledge we have of him. And through this, he's given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, and here it is, you may participate in the divine nature. Jesus' vision for his followers is not just that we follow his his example, it's that we would be like him. The extraordinary vision to which we are called is that we're drawn into the very life of Christ and therefore into the very life of God. That is so much bigger than just what would Jesus do. Paul loved this language, the Apostle Paul. It's peppered all the way through his writings. The book of Ephesians from beginning to end, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Our identity is in Christ. He starts and then for six chapters, he unpacks that. In Colossians, he speaks about what it's like to have Christ in you. And when you are in Christ, this is the hope of glory. Colossians 1.27. Again in Colossians, he speaks about the desire he has to see people mature, holy in the life of Jesus. And so he says, Colossians 2.6 and 7, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, you continue to live your lives, what? In him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith. And as you are taught, abounding in thanksgiving. What a good verse for this weekend. Thanksgiving weekend. And then when Paul is reflecting on his own life, this is the words that Manette read for us. It's kind of a little bit of autobiography. And he's, he's reflecting on his journey. He says, more than this, Philippians 3, more than this, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake. I've suffered the loss of all things and I regard them as rubbish. You didn't know that Jesus had a British, British dialect. Did he? They're rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, my own effort. No, one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. And I want to know Christ. Underline that word. We'll come back to it. I want to know Christ the power of his resurrection, the sharing of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, 
And if somehow I can attain resurrection from the dead, not that I've already obtained this or already reached the goal, but I press on. I press on. This is the the life of sainthood, the journey of holiness. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Wow. The Christian life isn't about gaining facts. Remember you underlined the word know to know. This knowledge isn't about intellectual understanding. It's about an experiential encounter with Jesus. Paul uses, and he often uses the word to know in the same way that we would use it to describe the intimacy of marriage. And a husband knew his wife. You know what we mean by that, wink, wink. And the wife knew the husband. Wink, wink. Uh, That's that kind of of oneness and, and intimacy centered on our identification with Christ, not just Christ, Christ in his death and resurrection. That's the pivot. Jesus' life, death, resurrection, they mark us. They are tattooed onto our souls. They are etched into our body. It's what allows us to enter into the the very intimacy with God that would be impossible without those things. It's the book of Hebrews that really grabs this theme and runs with it. Hebrews, of course, is a book about Jesus. Jesus as the great high priest. Jesus whose work defines everything. He is the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. That's, that's the words of Hebrews. It assumes that we are on a journey. We're indeed, we're running a race. But we don't run blind and we don't run alone and we don't depend only by the strength in our own legs. Instead, here it is, Hebrews 12, 2. We look to Jesus as pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and now is taking a seat at the right hand of the throne of God. What Hebrews really, really does is invites us to, to fill the full scope, our entire gaze, on, on the cross and on Jesus who we meet at the cross. He is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. That means he goes before us, leading the way, but also he establishes the path that we walk on and he makes us perfect in ways that allow us to travel the road. Think of it this way. Christ takes on our humanity. We know that. That's Christmas, right? He takes on our sin. That's Good Friday. This profound identification and intimacy. God becoming just a little bit like us. But why does he do that? The ultimate goal is so that we could take on his life with the same intimacy and identification. Him coming down and then lifting us up so that we are in Christ, fully immersed. Not just him in us, but us now in God. And there's a particular word, it's, it's a beautiful word, that's used to describe how this happens. Um, the word, and, and the English really is just not enough. Like you, This should be a, a word that has a megaphone attached to it, but the, the word is consider. That doesn't sound enough, does it? Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus, the apostle, the high priest, Hebrews 3.1. Consider. But it doesn't capture it. There's this idea of a, of a yearning, a contemplation, a, a, a gaze, a delightful gaze. 
Can you spend time just allowing this to fill your full, your full view? This to be the dominant thought in your mind. As you consider Jesus, as you gaze on him, as you turn the pages of his story slowly and lovingly and, and cherish what it is you're seeing. You take a page out of one of Paul's letters, and this is what he says, that gaze, that contemplation, that consideration. This is what it looks like. 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says, all of us with unveiled faces. Why? Because Jesus takes the veil away between us and God. Unveiled faces now see the glory of the Lord. Even if it only feels like we're seeing it just reflected through a mirror right now. And we are being transformed from that are transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. Unveiled faces, gazing, contemplating, seeing even if now only through a mirror and being transformed from glory into glory. That's holiness. And the book of Hebrews uses a fascinating word to describe what that kind of life looks like, participation. Uh, and I wasn't expecting it. You're not expecting it either. The word, the word is Sabbath, or Sabbath rest. Yes, we run the race set before us. Yes, we're called to persevere. And yet everything that's accomplished, holiness, sanctification, maturity, they're not ultimately fruits of our own effort. They come from our identification with our union with Christ. We are in Christ, and in that, we Sabbath. We rest. Some total of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be a mature Christian, sanctification, maturity, spiritual formation, whatever you want to call it, is that union with Jesus. Without an emphasis on being in Christ, all our efforts to be like Christ, they'll just be frustrating. And they devolve into just a vain, sort of self-centered attempt that looks like some kind of Christianized form of Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. The Bible just turns into a self-help book. Holiness, spiritual maturity, is not ultimately about the pursuit of morality. Morality is important, but it's not an end in itself. It actually is the byproduct of something else, of being in Christ. You can't reduce holiness to morality. You can't really reduce character just to, to virtue because the essence of sin is not immorality and the essence of holiness is not morality. The essence of a Christian life is union with Christ and all sin does is fractures the union. What we need is a real-time, day-by-day, moment-by-moment encounter with Jesus. The rich young ruler, he got this. Luke 16, you remember he comes to Jesus and he wants to know about the rules. God, tell me the rules. Jesus says, well, you know the rules. Here they are. And he says, yeah, I got those. I'm good with that. I'm good to go. And what does Jesus say? Come follow me. Let's, let's be in this together. Discover what it means to live a life in Christ. Because the journey of Christian maturity is about the ability to foster the capacity for that kind of union. 
the heart of holiness, is not just facts. It's not just a brain dump of the right stuff. And it's not just teaching people to follow the example of Jesus. What would Jesus do? It's fostering a dynamic relationship with Jesus who has been adopted into the Godhead, into the Father, and so invites us to join him. We get grafted into that vine and brought into union in Jesus through the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be in Christ. I think that's, that's lots for today, isn't it? Um, as always, uh, Pastor Sheldon has prepared a great study guide. Those of you in small groups, you're going to be working through this material this week. Those of you not in small groups, you're going to join a small group this week. Here's a bunch of them. That's not a comprehensive list. There's dozens of groups, but that's some that are running that we would love to have you. Uh, and if you have any, th- any thoughts, any questions, anything that comes up, Uh, shoot us an email to that address, questions at mcbc.org, and we weave that material into next week's sermon. As we did at the beginning of this sermon, a lot of that was coming out of last week's questions. So I think that's that's lots for today. Let me invite the worship team back. Let me pray for for us as we we close the message time. God, God, we acknowledge you as as the source of all life. Uh, Our day day life as we know it and experience it with its joys and its frustrations, but also the life that you have intended for us, a life of holiness that comes through our unity in Christ. And God, would you be at work fostering that union? Give us the appetite that would, would lead us to spend the best of our efforts in our days, not just on our own achievement, but on fostering that relationship. God, we want to be in you and we invite you to be in us one in Christ. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen.